Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. The music. I love the Christmas classics. I love the, the new spins. But I love Christmas carols, I think, most of all. These songs, many of them hundreds of years old, they have such a weight to them. Now, like most people, I usually get caught up just kind of singing through them because I've heard them a million times without really thinking about what they say. But every time I really stop and listen, I'm blown away. Two that I've been meditating on lately are Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which we just sang, and then Oh Holy Night. And they are both so rich in both music and lyric that I was drawn into this idea of kind of going a little bit deeper with them, studying the stories behind how they came to be and the truth that their words proclaim. And I want to share that with y'all. And so this morning, we're starting this two-part Christmas series called Christmas Hymns. Today, we're going to talk through the song that we just finished singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And the next Sunday, we're going to look at the classic, O Holy Night. I'm so excited to share this with you. We've never really done anything like this before. And I think it's going to be really fun. So let's dive in. Now, the first thing you need to know about this song is that it wasn't originally a song. And that the first line was not originally, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In 1739, Charles Wesley wrote a poem entitled, For Christmas Day. Now, you may recognize the Wesley name because Charles and his brother John founded the Methodist Church. Charles is also famous for writing between seven and 9,000 hymns during his life, a prolific hymn writer. But like I said, this song actually wasn't a hymn at first. It was a poem. And Charles got inspired to write it as he walked to Mass one Christmas morning and he heard the bells ringing out all over London. And he imagined like the majesty of Christmas coming of Jesus of the Incarnation. Now, like I said, the first line wasn't originally Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The first line of Charles's poem went like this. Hark how all the welkin rings. Hark how all the welkin rings. Does anyone know what or who welkin is? Dead silence. All right. I didn't either, so no, no blame. The common belief among theologians back in the 18th century when this was written was that the universe was divided into three tiers. The bottom tier was kind of the earth tier where humanity dwells. Then there was a middle tier above that where the celestial creatures sometimes descended to like talk to humans or commune with humans. And then there was the top tier where God and the angels and kind of all the celestial beings lived. And that top tier was called the welkin. So that's what he's talking about. Hark how all the welkin rings. So when Charles wrote that, he's basically saying, hark how the highest heaven rings out. Like how the highest heaven is so excited about what 
is happening. He just does it in like a super nerdy way. And his friend and fellow pastor, George Whitfield, who you might also have heard of, he read the poem and he told Charles, that first line is garbage, man. Like it's so bad. Nobody knows what that is. It doesn't even make sense. So George helped rewrite it and then published it for the first time in 1753 in a book of poems that he had put together with Charles and some other people. Now, fast forward about 100 years. That was 1739, 1750s. It's 1840, and a 31-year-old guy named Felix Mendelssohn is an up-and-coming composer in Germany. Now, to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Gutenberg inventing the printing press, Mendelssohn is asked to write a song. He does, and it becomes known as the Gutenberg Cantata. And the song turns out to be really popular and really easy to sing. And so in typical German fashion, it makes its way into the pubs, and they sing it together, holding brews and singing like these tavern songs like they always used to do. And by 1855, so 15 years later, this drinking song was being sung in taverns and bars all over Western Europe, not just in Germany. And a man named William Heyman Cummings heard it in England, and he decided to pair the tune that he liked so much with Charles Wesley's poem from a hundred years earlier. And the rest is history. Hark the Herald Angels Sing as We Know It Now was born, and today it's one of the most popular Christmas songs in the world. Now, why do I tell you all of that? First, because I researched it, and I want you to be proud of me because I learned a lot. <laughs> but secondly, more importantly, because by the time Cummings combined the music and lyrics to make the song what it is today, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, George Whitfield, and Felix Mendelssohn had all passed away. They died without ever hearing what would become the most well-known song that any of them ever worked on. Now, here's why that matters. You never know what God is going to do with the things you create. You never know what God is going to do with the things that you Create. We have so many creative folks here at Restore, writers and artists, musicians and producers and filmmakers and designers and engineers and, and more. I could go on and on. And even if you don't do it vocationally, we create every time we, we share an idea with someone or we, we write something meaningful down. You may never get to see the full fruits of your creative work, but God is still using it. So please don't stop. The world needs you and your creativity. So that's for someone this morning. Whatever you're working on, whatever you've got going on, keep going. Keep doing it. Because you never know how God is going to use it. Now, we have some background. I want to jump into the lyrics. It begins with these first two famous lines. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now, this, these two lines, and really the whole song, are based on a passage from Luke's account of Jesus' birth. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says this. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, we have to back up a little bit in the story to really get the full picture of what's happening here. Now, if you think the Christmas season can be kind of a roller coaster for us, it's nothing compared to what the first Christmas was like for Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. You see, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome at the time, he issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman-occupied world. 
Rome was basically conquering new nations all the time, and so a census allowed the emperor to know just how many people were under his rule and how many people he could tax, which was the most important part of all of this. So everybody had to go home to their own hometowns and and register so that Rome could keep an eye on everyone and so that they knew exactly how much revenue of tax they should be bringing in. So Mary and Joseph set off on this 90-mile journey from where they are in Galilee back to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem so that they could be counted in the census. Now, Scripture says that during this journey, Mary is, quote, great with child. (laughs) Great with child. Just a word of advice here. If your wife or partner is pregnant, I would stay away from the phrase, great with child. (laughs) I've used it once. It did not go well. But see, Mary not only is great with child, she is just a child herself. Most scholars believe that she was between 13 and 16 years old at this time. And if you remember the story, Mary got pregnant before she and Joseph were married. So this young and poor and scandalized couple have to travel a really long way to Bethlehem. If that wasn't hard enough, fast forward to after Jesus is born and the little family is forced to become refugees and flee to Egypt because jealous King Herod is killing every young boy in the area in an attempt to find and murder Jesus. But even in the midst of all that, the angels are singing, glory to the newborn king. Glory to the newborn king. That is such an incredible line because as you can probably surmise from the story I just told, Jesus was far from a king in the eyes of the world. The circumstances surrounding his conception and birth and early life are about as polar opposite from royalty as you can get. And yet, the angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And they aren't singing it quietly. They are proclaiming the kingship of Christ for everyone to hear. That's what hark means. Hark means listen up, come and see, pay attention. That's why when you see hark, the herald angels sing, it says hark, exclamation point, the herald angels sing. The hark is the first part. It's telling people, come and look, come and listen. The angels are seeing all these other kings, including Caesar and Herod, they're frauds. The true king has arrived. And his name is Jesus. This was a political statement from the angels here. See, when the angels sing glory to the newborn king, they are by default singing that glory doesn't belong to any other kings. That's why Jesus is often called the king of kings. It reminds me of this line from Mary's Magnificat. That's the song that she sings about Jesus right after finding out she's pregnant. She's with her cousin Elizabeth, and she just starts singing this beautiful song. Luke 1.52 He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. Jesus is king, and his kingdom is one in which the proud are brought low and the humble are lifted. So that's how the song starts out. The next two lines continue explaining what makes this newborn king so glorious. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. King Jesus just continues to surprise us. You see, because instead of war, like so many other kings bring, he brings peace. Instead of judgment, he brings mercy. Instead of dividing people, he unites them with each other and with God. Jesus is the king of reconciliation. 
You see, humanity's relationship with the divine was broken, not by God's doing, but because we kind of kept deciding to just do our own thing, go our own way, ignore the instruction and leadership of God. The entirety of the Old Testament is story after story of God pursuing humanity with his love and humanity shunning it in favor of power and greed and autonomy. He keeps making covenants with us and we keep on breaking them, but the beauty of this is that God is not deterred. He puts on flesh and he comes to earth so that finally, once and for all, God and sinners are reconciled. And it isn't just a chosen group of people who get to be reconciled. Listen to these next two couplets. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. The peace and mercy and reconciliation that Jesus brings is not just for one nation, it's for all nations. It's not just for one kind of person, it's for all people. And a quick aside here, notice it says joyful all ye nations rise. The message of Jesus should elicit joy in us and in the world. That's why the word used throughout Scripture to describe the work and words of Jesus is gospel, literally translated good news. Jesus and his kingdom are good news, meant to fill us with joy. And as one of my mentors, Lisa Sharon Harper, often says, if it's not good news for everyone, then it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it's not good news for everyone, for all people, then it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this good news is for everyone, and we are now all encouraged to join in this song of joy with the angels. We are called to proclaim alongside them that Christ is born in Bethlehem. Now, that's an important line here, because Christ, despite popular belief, is not Jesus' last name. It is a title given to him. See, Christ means Savior, means Messiah. He, this is confirmation that Jesus is the long-awaited and often predicted Savior of the world. No wonder the angels tell us to sing. Our Savior, the Savior, has come. Verse 2 continues this kind of Christocentric theme. It says, Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. See, King Jesus, our Savior, is everlasting. There is no beginning or end to him. This is a reference, actually, back to John's version of the Christmas story, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, that's his nickname for Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He is our everlasting Lord. Now, the next stanza is one of my favorites because it's filled with such rich theology. It says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now, the central point of these lines is that Jesus is divinity in the flesh. Okay, this is really important. God has become human. The creator has become a part of the creation. The Apostle Paul says it like this, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Jesus is God in his fullness. Now, look, I know we're all on different points 
in this journey of faith, struggling and doubting and trying to figure all of it out. But this right here, this is a central piece of historic Christianity. The claim of Jesus' divinity alongside the claim of Jesus' resurrection from the dead are the two hinges upon which the door of Christian orthodoxy swings. It's not just that Jesus was an amazing teacher who performed miracles and practiced the most radical faith that anyone had ever seen. It's that he did all of that as God in the flesh. It's not, that he, it's not just that he was born and lived and died. It's that death couldn't hold him down, and he came back to life. You see, Jesus is not a symbol sent here to represent the likeness of God. He is not a prophet sent here to teach us about God. Jesus is God. That's why this song and all throughout Scripture, he is called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That word's actually first used in a prediction about Jesus from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. It says, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew, in his Christmas story, actually quotes this prophecy from Isaiah. And then he ends his account of Jesus' life with this kind of benediction from Christ. Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Y'all, those are actually Jesus' last recorded words after he is resurrected and right before he ascends back into heaven. The final words, don't miss this, that Jesus leaves with us are, I am with you always. I am and forever will be your Emmanuel. And he's not just Emmanuel in the abstract. I love how the lyric says, Jesus, our Emmanuel. See, Jesus is not just God with us in the collective. He is also God with me. And he's God with you and with you and with you and with each one of us. Our incarnate God is personal. Look, maybe Christmas is like not your favorite time. Maybe it's a difficult season for you. Or maybe Christmas, this one, just this year, is especially difficult for some reason. Maybe Christmas time always makes you miss someone, or maybe this is one of your first Christmases without them. Or maybe everything that has happened in these last few years has meant some separation in your family or friends, and you're just kind of feeling alone. The message of Christmas, y'all, is that you are never alone. The newborn king came for the whole world, but he also came for you. Emmanuel is with us, yeah, but he's with you, each of you. And he isn't with us out of compulsion. I love that line. It says, pleased as man with men to dwell. God was pleased to put on flesh and make his home with us. He didn't do it begrudgingly. His great love drove him to us. That's what the most popular verse in the whole Bible says, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I like how John says it in his writing even more. This is how God made his love manifest among us. He has sent his one and only son into the world that we may live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son 
as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It was God's love for us that brought him to earth. It was God's love for us that drove him to the cross, that propelled him out of the grave and made him our forever Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, time for the last verse. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Now, I'll be honest with you. I kind of struggle with these two lines, which may sound a little bit strange, but I want to tell you why. I think far too often in the American church, these concepts of peace and righteousness have been corrupted. They've been kind of ripped away from their original meeting and and sterilized to kind of make them more palatable for us. Sometimes I think it's inadvertent, but sometimes I know it's not. We've too often reduced righteousness to personal morality, right? Checking off a bunch of imaginary boxes that make us a good person or make God like us a little bit more. But the word righteousness in scripture is actually much better translated as justice. We talk about this actually in our training for restore group leaders. One of the three pillars that we rally all of our group leaders around is righteousness, which means literally restoring right relationship between all things, between us and God, but between us and each other, between us and creation. Fixing the brokenness, yeah, in our hearts, but also in our world and among the people that live in it. Along those same lines, we've too often reduced peace to not rocking the boat. We claim that fighting against injustice is is divisive and encourage people to stay quiet in the name of peace. But this is peacekeeping, not peacemaking. Those are different. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the peace." makers, for they shall be called children of God. Those who make peace, those who enter into broken places and create peace. I think it's incredible because of all the characteristics that Jesus describes in those Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount I just quoted, peacemaker is the only one that's listed with an identity instead of a reward. The other ones say like, oh yeah, if you do this, you'll be blessed. If you mourn, you'll be comforted. If, you're, if you do this, you'll be shown mercy. But it says that peacemakers will be called children of God. That's an identity statement. The only one in that list. This means that we are never acting more like God than when we are peacemaking. We are his representatives, his children, when we go out and peacemake, not peacekeeping, peacemaking. Let me explain the difference really quick. Peacekeeping is kind of standing in the uncontroversial middle trying to placate everyone. Peacekeeping is calling for unity while refusing to deal with brokenness and marginalization in our communities. But peacemaking, y'all, peacemaking is standing for truth and justice and equality and dignity for all people, no matter the cost. Understanding that each and every person you encounter has been made in the image of God and is worthy of dignity and love and care. That's peacemaking. When we understand peace and righteousness correctly, those lyrics really start to come alive and they become really beautiful, I think. Next, it says, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. This is a resurrection lyric, plain and simple. Jesus overcame sin and death and everything evil could throw out him by dying on the cross and then rising again. And Jesus offers that resurrected life to everyone. Again, Charles Wesley here is making sure that we know Jesus doesn't just bring healing and light and life to some people. 
He brings it to all people. Life and light to all he brings. Now the song comes to an end with this really beautiful stanza. It says, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. The first line in that stanza about Jesus laying his glory by is a reference to giving up his privileges to be with us. That's what he did when he put on flesh. As Paul says in his letter to the church in Philippi, Jesus, who being in very nature God, he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, took the humble position of a servant, and was born as a human being. That's what Jesus did. His love drove him to that for us. And then those last three lines are all declarations about why he was born. When we sing this verse, we are proclaiming that the Christmas story, it's not just a, a charming anecdote about a cute baby. It is a pronouncement of a profound shift in the cosmos, a turning point in the history of the world. Jesus is the end of evil's reign. Listen, he is the death of death. Jesus is the death of death. One of my favorite songs we sing here at Restore is called The Passion. The chorus says, our chains are gone, our debt is paid, the cross has overthrown the grave, for Jesus' blood that sets us free means death to death and life for me. Death is awful. I know a lot of your stories, I know that most of us are not unfamiliar with death. In fact, we've been reminded of it in a whole new way. These last two years, as over 5 million people worldwide have passed away from COVID. Death, especially that amount of it, is, is horrific. It's devastating. But it no longer has the final word. Jesus is the death of death. He came to give us life abundantly now and forevermore. And so the song ends right back where we started. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The angels are telling us to come near, to pay attention, because King Jesus, the Savior of the world, is here. I know that sometimes things can become so familiar that they kind of lose their meaning. Right? This is often the case with, with rituals, especially religious rituals or hymns or songs that we sing all the time. So I hope our little journey through this song helped bring it back to life a little bit for you. There's so much truth and beauty in these notes and lyrics. So to help us really take that to heart, the band is going to come back up and lead us in kind of a different version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing designed to help us really soak this song up. So you're welcome to stand and sing along. You're welcome to sit and meditate or anything in between. This time is for you and for King Jesus. So let me pray, and then we're going to begin.